Welcome to Laps and Gaps. This is Basil. Today, Jack and I will be talking about power generation and the emergence of solar power. Jack will outline solar's importance and how that has given rise to a focus on storage in Silicon Valley. And Jack and I will disagree about the relative importance of transmission versus uh, a primarily storage-driven approach. The content presented here only reflects the opinions of those presenting at the time of their conversation. It may not reflect their current views, nor does it reflect the views of any institution they represent. Information presented may contain factual errors. Any opinion presented should be considered for informational purposes and not be relied upon in any investment decision. The opinions expressed by any host or guest should not be considered legal or investment advice, nor should they be used to evaluate any investment or security. The content is not directed at any investor or potential investor in any fund or for any firm. Clients of those presenting on this may hold investments mentioned and may have different investment goals from your own. Hi, hey Basil, it's great to be with you today. Excited to talk about this, uh, this topic, a world that has large economic movements driven by alternative approach to power. We've actually seen a supply side and a demand side shock on oil. I was looking at where was I seeing investment move into the space. I know everybody's abundantly clear about electric cars as some of these business models begin to take shape in alternative fuels, alternative energy spaces, more so than it was before where it was largely propped up initially by regulatory subsidies. And so just want to toss it to you to get your thinking around where are the opportunities and what are the, some of the limitations? I know that we had a, discussed this beforehand, and so you had a couple immediate thoughts around that. Yeah, and I'll preface by saying that Whitebread Capital does have a, a long-term investment now in First Solar, which is a solar module uh, manufacturer. I'll also say that since we've owned it, I've not picked the worst one, but the rest of the sector has performed better than First Solar has for whatever reason, and I, I honestly not quite sure why. I just want to be out there with that. So I'm not the guy that, that knows everything about everything as it relates to solar. And so First Solar, just for clarity, it... So First Solar makes the solar panels. Yep. So the one of the things that I saw when I bought shares was they had essentially a development arm that they that is not very capital efficient, that it seemed like that they were taking costs out of and potentially exiting that has occurred since since we entered. And then they had... So they are focused on the industrial side rather than being a residential or commercial panel maker. I guess they do some commercial, so that's not fair. But they're not residential, very much industrial, which means utility grade, utility scale. If when I lived in New Jersey, one of the pharmaceutical companies had a large solar farm, that would be the kind of thing that they would do to supply solar just for the corporate campus or and surrounding campuses, not putting uh, panels on a rooftop. Uh, for instance. And what's that mean? That's important because it means that they are focused on the total cost uh, structure of both installing and then maintaining. And and their efficiency is competitive, but not necessarily best in class. So the thesis then, did you have this view that the market was going to be evolving from a less oil dependent state to one that was going to be leveraging alternative and beyond the grid types of things uh, like solar to move energy in different ways than it had been before? Or was this simply uh, an efficiency, there was enough efficiency to squeeze out of it? Like how much of it was driven by no, the growth of this no, and where it, it was going? So whenever I do anything, it, like the, the industrial backdrop needs to be supportive. Yep. And so the cost curve had come down enough so that solar was at least competitive at that point with, certainly with coal and oil, and but also natural gas. And so that was that's what kind of led my interest. So do you think, 
let's talk then about the next step where you get to, which is distributed solar. Like, how do we, what's that mean and what do we get to? I know you mentioned this ahead so, in our prep. Yeah, so distributed solar is the, the one that people know and, and consider for their own homes. It's solar on, to, on a rooftop. And the problem, there are a couple of companies that do this really well. Whenever there's a new technology, that tends to be the proof point. They, they put it on a, a residential rooftop first. The problem is that people are really bad at maintaining their, their own panels. They just don't care. They put it up there. They get their tax rebate. They get a lower cost of electricity, but they're not focused on maintaining the panel. If, if one panel goes down, they're not replacing that panel. If it doesn't rain for a while, they're not up there washing off the panels and therefore one of the problems that we've become very aware of in California with the fires is that, okay, so why has solar production not, if you've had blackouts, why has solar production not really shown up the way that may have been modeled was because all the smoke in the air settled on the panels in great mass and couldn't clean them quickly enough in order to get the full generation and the efficiency that you would have expected. That happens on the residential side. It's commonplace. Nobody washes their panels the way they should. Nobody maintains the way they should. And so the efficiency you get is not what it should be. Got it. And as you think about solar on a... So if you were to actually take it over the lifetime and compare it to utility, it ends up being not cost-effective. Relative. I got it. So understood. So then what do we do with this newfound, low-cost, productive, alternative energy tool of solar if... Uh, large-scale distributed residential solar isn't the place where we're going to see it. I think you still do it industrial. Like, oh, I don't understand why it can't come from the utility. It seems to make sense for them to do the, the way large solar projects done by utility, unfortunately, get paid for is they amortize the cost across the lifetime of the asset, and then they increase everybody's bill by a couple of cents. So they, they have a regulated IRR typically. Or some that are some markets that are somewhat deregulated. So, even while these solar projects have been put in, there are a couple of projects, uh, particularly in California, that actually have lowered the cost of people around them because of the deregulation, or at least partial deregulation, the California, the California scheme. But um, across the nation, where they've put these in, because they haven't been retiring assets at the same time, bills are still up until those legacy assets get retired, and then hopefully bills start to go down for the residential you know, customer or the commercial. Got it. And I'll make a note here for the listeners that what we're discussing isn't really taking into account emissions or making an argument around any sort of aspect of climate change for this discussion. We're simply looking at the dollars and cents of what makes economical sense around power production, power utilization across a wide variety of industries. And I think why that's important is if you want to understand the pathway to alternative energy and clean energy usage, it's probably going to be through a sustainable, profitable uh, business models and approaches. And my hope is, as you're hearing Basel talk now, is that that seems more possible, at least in solar, than it has been previously because of how much better we are at producing some of the inputs needed to make that uh, worthwhile or uh, viable. And so 10 years ago, you could do this in Florida and I think southeast, southwest <coughs> part of the United States. Today, you can put a panel in Michigan and it'll pay for itself. Yeah, which is, which is just it's incredible. Good. So people yeah. make at that point, people make the decision based on the economics of it and not on the politics of it. And that's meaningful to me. Yeah, it ends up being the economics and the aesthetics of it. the aesthetics matter. Oh, sure. Your um, neighbor likes to see the you like your neighbor to see the shiny or solar panels. 
Exactly. <laughs> or exactly. see you in the Tesla. <laughs> yeah. Or, or for all these things, people don't want them in their backyard. Look, the Tesla roof tile, which I, I think maybe we should actually be talking about the Dow one, because I think that one's a little bit more actual. Yeah. It looks great. But the ones that are at least that, that are current generation don't look as good. Got it. So I had a, a slightly different... The, Go ahead. Yeah. So the, the last thing I was going to say is I've been going through the tax code of the state of Illinois recently. And one of the thing, one of the provisions is that there can be no regulation on a on any level that prohibits the installation of solar panels on a home, which I just thought was interesting to see. I, I've tucked away that knowledge, not in preparation for this conversation. But I, I saw that and I was like, that's funny. And I understand. But I, it was interesting to see it there. Huh. Yeah, that is interesting. Because uh, most of the legislation to date over the last two decades has been largely around enabling and trying to incentivize people to install. Sure, so, they, they have that as well. It's, hey, here's whatever. I can't remember what the amount was. And also, nobody can prevent you from doing it and, and getting that. Yeah. yeah. Good. Anything else? Any other things you, you want to think about or, or mention on the kind of that larger global scale and trend related to you specifically touched on solar, but other types of energy or the idea of, is it? Look, wind is certainly in the ether. The cost curve hasn't come down as severely because solar is dealing with a semiconductor cycle and semiconductor like improvements, which, you know, means that you're thinking more about Moore's law, even if you're not aligned with Moore's law, which is a doubling of capacity every 18 months. Whereas wind is just physics. And physics can only get better uh, yeah. marginally at a time. And so now solar is very cost effective. Wind works in certain areas, but isn't quite as widespread in, in how well it can be used everywhere. And I think we're at, what, 5 or 10%, I think, of total energy generation right now is solar. And, you'd ex- you know, I think the forecast is for it to be, what, 25 or 30 in, in 10 years. So is that uh, our, if I run the list of but, the other ones, geothermal... Bioenergy only works in certain areas. Yeah. yeah. Bioenergy. It's biomass. And biomass it's, production of, yeah. of energy. That seems yeah. to me to fit within, I'll talk in a moment about the, a revolutionary change versus an evolutionary change in power. And then uh, hydropower is, I guess, the other one, which we've been using for a long time. It's great. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's as direct as it gets. It turns the turbine, right? Hard to, hard to scale. So then if we're thinking about it in that context, the, the questions you're asking are how does solar continue to make leaps and bound steps? And how do the, I guess the house wind gain some efficiency, but it seems like you're, you're more bearish on that actually being a viable uh, path to significant power production that would allow a significant shift away from traditional Uh, uh, I I just think it's evolutionary. It's a couple of percent every year that it gets better as people do a better job of engineering. Yeah, which means it probably won't even keep up with our nominal growth of utilization anyway. Okay, that's really helpful. Anything else that you wanted to mention or do you want to shift a little into my world? Let's shift into your world, and I think that might bring us back to uh, something else that I wanted to talk about. So on the investment side, I thought about this. I made two cases uh, for an electrostate future actually happening and what's it going to take to happen. And the first was a slow and methodical evolution driven by a variety of different market forces, government incentives, and that lead us in a particular direction and through a series of different types of innovation steps. Uh, I think you talked through a few of those and we just went through kind of the list of kind of current additional, where else do we get our energy if not from uh, traditional fossil fuels, coal, oil. 
and we just walked through some of those. And I think one of the things that became abundantly clear through an evolutionary stepwise model of this was that it was inevitably going to be a, a hybrid model. These alternative fuels, wind and electricity, are historically and notoriously very lumpy in terms of their energy generation. And so understanding how we actually hybridize those into our grid is important. And that's uh, there's actually been a lot of great work that's happened and continue to happen. But where that has manifested itself on the investment side, especially over the last kind of three to four years, is on the energy storage uh, side. Uh, and the reason that's important, as you can imagine, with any sort of lumpiness, effective, efficient energy storage can actually smooth consumption. It can also store in lower cost times and generate for higher cost times. And so there's a the use cases, at least from an energy usage standpoint, make a lot of sense. And so what we've seen on the investment side has been pretty significant venture capital investment, over $1.7 billion in the first half of 2019. Admittedly, a large chunk of that's from a singular investment into Northvolt. But the it, general trend has been a kind of a large uptick in these types of businesses. And I'd like to just touch quickly on why I think that is. I, I think that what you're seeing is viability of a hybrid model, the need for storage as that transition for that hybrid model. You're seeing a growth of utilization through a variety of different means, certainly the electric car movement, and we could spend an entire you know week of episodes on what's happening in the kind of auto industry and the like around this and the bets on the future in this space, have further accelerated the need to have more efficient, effective, lower cost storage. And so the metrics and numbers on that, I think if you look at what it costs per kilowatt hour to store we're expecting kind of 50 percent to 100 percent drops in that over the course of the next kind of five years and we've seen that level of drop over the last uh, five years to a decade and what that's begun to do is allow new types of business models and so if you're familiar with demand pricing if you're running a large office building you pay for your peak consumption number uh, even if you don't consume that number all the time and so what they're found is large industrial installations of storage capacity reduces your demand number, which then have a pretty significant impact on your overall energy cost because you've reduced that peak price number. And so as you find these little niches within the traditional grid and the way electricity has been delivered, you actually have new business models that are actually able to take advantage of significant reduction in cost and then in time further validate kind of an energy storage model. And then what that will enable is as you have more things like solar come online or your industrial model or your Walmart model of solar panels, you actually have a place to actually store that energy and actually utilize it. And that's the my opening salvo, if you will, into the space of where I'm interested and excited about what we're seeing on the investment side and, and see some real kind of nice, solid year over year and five-year over five-year types of trends, both on the investment, but more importantly, in the technology itself. And that, to me, represents this evolution on the hybrid model, where we're going, and a really important step. Is your sense that where most of the investment is happening is in you know chemistry, or is it in physics, right? Is it in refinement, or is it in, let's do some, so do something other than lithium ion or lithium academy or any of the lithium-based stuff? Because the, to me, it, str- it strikes me that the mineral may be zinc or lithium, but it's just another non-renewable resource that we're having to use that the projections are will run out of in 25 or 30 years, which maybe that's not true and it ends up being 50 or 60, but we're still, we're still depleting a resource rather than doing a better job 
renewing, as it were. True. I think the bulk of the advancements that you've seen have been from traditional technology approaches to batteries, I guess, if that's how I'd answer that question. And I think what you're seeing is as uh, industries want to decouple themselves from singular aspects of you know supply that enable their possibilities not how do i just not be beholden to oil you're broadening out to a broader set of resources but to your point those are limited in their nature be careful what you wish for you shift to that type of state and you're going to run out of those resources as well even if they're cleaner by nature so maybe what the bet you're taking is that's the move we're going to advance battery technology and then ultimately we're going to solve a way to actually there's going to be some discovery that there has to be step function change. Yeah, there has to be step function change. And, and you're seeing I, some of that in graphene and other the things, other new area technology research, but those aren't in actual application yet. So they're, right, right. they're in theoretical I mean, I think that's what world. I think that's what the funding though that you've seen in VC land has been. Yep. Right. It's let's go find some new chemistry because lithium explodes every millionth battery. Yep. And those can be bad batteries if we're going to have a lot of them. Correct. Um, you know, that can be an opportunity. I think it's a great the, place where venture capital is really successful is in that type of space too. The, you, th- that's exactly what I want them doing, frankly. Yep. And I've been, what I don't want to see is I don't want SPACs doing it, although I know that they are doing it. And I don't want government doing this. No. Because yeah. you're taking it. To put a, well, I, to clarify, don't want government. Things like DARPA and the like are, are really productive early tools for some of these discovery things through academic research and you don't mean you don't want that to go away you don't want government themselves dictating it can you explain that a little bit let's assume for a moment that biden wins the presidency and all of a sudden we have more money going towards greener technologies from what i've seen they want to make major investments in solar today if you're to do the storage um, to do solar and storage basically across the board and still keep it economical. That means you can extend the uh, life of the solar generation, like the electricity lifetime, yeah. for about another two and a half or three hours. So instead of it cutting off at eight o'clock, it cuts off at 11 or 12, yeah. which might get you there, might get you there. Yeah, I mean, I'm, um, in, I'm in favor of the government driving if you know what the cost curve looks like and as you generate more demand you get some economies of scale and some reductions in that and that continues to drop well can we bridge a gap that makes it more economical for a larger percentage of of businesses or the population depending on if you're looking at residential or industrial that seems interesting to me and a way to stay out of the way of the innovation but to help incentivize adoption yeah i think i want storage companies to be out there of course. Right. I, I mean, yes. I, I want solar generation, but I want a separate company that just has the batteries, as a, essentially batteries as a service. Correct. Um, I, I do not think you can, we will not accomplish this transition without independent innovation around these pieces of the whole puzzle. So storage right. itself, like you won't get yeah. it unless you've got innovation driving that, right? Yeah. One of the other things that I saw as I was doing a little bit of work that I thought was interesting. So you put current cost is at $200 per kilowatt hour in 2020. Yeah. Right now, better transmission gets you south of 150, which is easy enough to understand, right? California, we have California to New York, right? There's four hours there that if we could do a lot more generation in Southeast United States to fund the early hours of California and then vice versa late, that would be super interesting. We lose too much electricity and transmission right now. So it's funny that like heat always matters. Yeah. And so when we have cooler lines, we should be 
changing the flow of electricity to get across distances so that we can do it at higher efficiency. And we just ha we haven't invested. Like Europe has invested. The United States has not invested in, in these kinds of infrastructure that is really needed to lower the cost of electricity. But maybe that's where these pieces come together. The next wave of investment, if you've got a significant amount of investments heading into the storage spaces, which admittedly is necessary as you move this power around because it's going to be lumpy even as you do upgrades or enhancements of, of the kind you just talked about, which are more grid enhancement type of things. It's going to be lumpy and geographic usage is lumpy as well. And then you've got the, in addition to that, day nights type of stuff that you mentioned. So if you advance, it's kind of like the first block you move is the storage block, which then unlock and enable a variety of other things. So what you'd want to see before 2025 are advancements in the technologies that allow us to actually either move the electricity or in data systems and software innovations that allow us to modulate that almost in real time as we move it. And then they would move to world-class, first-of-their-kind types of storage places, and then ultimately out and about. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I guess the, the point I was trying to make was, I think there's a lot of focus on storage. There's a lot of focus on generation. There's a lot less on transmission. And my, I just find that interesting. My point is it didn't make sense to do much on transmission until you did the others. It's like in next generation sequencing. Until you could actually sequence the genome at a cost-effective level, worrying about having to store all the genomes you were sequencing was a secondary issue that you didn't need to worry about yet. No, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I just think there may be less storage out there that we need than we thought we needed. There's right. less storage out there than we thought we needed. Oh, for There's sure. There's less storage that we need than it, it oh. transmission. Oh, then we do need storage. We need massive amounts of storage. Yep. But we may need less because the current generation is always going to be better than to have to put another piece in to store it. Sure. Which I, I don't think is not how, at least in what I've read, I. There's a lot. There's a lot of literature around storage. There's very little around transmission. Uh, correct, um, but I think most of the literature on storage say there's a wide variety of unserved areas that would benefit, and where the the cost-effective business argument makes sense for storage. Um, I, I think that's right. I think we're closer to that. I agree. And I, I just don't know how you pay for the transmission as well. We're talking about across geographic regions, across utilities. It's a lot harder to get something like that done. But it's easier uh, to do once you have commoditized types of things around solar and the ability to store it. Because now, in the future, if everyone's driving an electric car, it's not oil tankers driving to the local gas station to fill up tanks in the ground. It's some sort of state-of-the-art battery technology to be able to charge your car. And where is those battery technologies getting charged from? How are you riding those around? There's, there's a whole The whole industry itself shifts around on who supplies and what that supply looks like. And that's really hard to do. Right. So when they put in a Tesla charging station, the amount of investment in the grid that is required is pretty incredible to be able to turn that on and off and reroute things around. And to be in full disclosure, again, we at Wiper Capital own a stake in iTron, which sells modules that do exactly that for a variety of purposes. But they do that in gas and electricity. So I should go ahead and disclose that. Yeah. Should anybody yeah. listen to this podcast? <laughs> Your positivity is overwhelming. <laughs> so the fi the second area, so that's the evolutionary take on how we get to transformation in, in this space. And that one is exciting to me because I, I'll wait, the way the business models start to shift around, the way they interlink with where the innovations go next, you can start to actually chart a path and then you can chart an investment approach to it. And as you said, it's a great place for venture capital where there's never been more money than there has been now. 
And it's exciting and interesting to think about that. The other area is what I call revolutionary. And so I had this quote, the Stone Age didn't end for lack of stone. That's the model. And I don't know how to think about this, but there was a really interesting MIT business called Commonwealth Fusion. And I would be remiss in a future of energy if I didn't mention fusion for two reasons. One, we went to we both went to University of Chicago and a very classic Keanu Reeves movie called Chain Reaction was about fusion back in the mid 90s. And so obviously the topic of fusion has been around for a while. We've known about Mm -hmm. the possibilities and the difficulties to it. And it's a long road and tons of money has been put into the space. But why I thought this company was interesting is here's what's at stake, what, what people are willing. They took in 65 million in 2018, 115 million in 2019, 84 million earlier this year. Their team actually just was able to recreate what effectively is what happens inside a star in a laboratory, basically heating plasma and novel electromagnets to keep using electromagnets to keep that plasma in place and getting actually a reproducible model for it. Now we've seen this before in research and we weren't able to reproduce it. So we'll see. There's a lot of kind of uncertainty around it, but why I wanted to bring up the second way is after a long conversation of all these different ways and things that we're doing in solar and reducing the cost and the link between government and subsidy and the like to drive this is that it also could be a transformative discovery that then allows us to shift into a completely new space And what I'm hopeful for is I actually think the stuff you do on the evolutionary side empowers any new type of discovery like that. Because you'll just, it would, because you, if you, let's say you discovered fusion, you still need all the things we just talked about. Effective grid utilization, you need storage at endpoints beyond the grid, you need receptors, i.e. cars or whatever you're using, uh, shipping that's electric that could actually utilize the, the fuel. And so anyway, I just thought that's my second model that I wanted to talk that mention. And so I don't yeah, know if you look, think I'm crazy or, or what you think about that. No, look, I mean, look, free energy is the holy grail. I love the saint as much as anybody growing up and it changes everything. It changes the world, right? Yeah. All of a sudden wars that are fought over clean water don't have to be fought because you can just pull it out of the sea and desalinate, which is yeah. just energy intensive, but who cares anymore? It is the holy grail. So I'd probably handicap that one quite a bit. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'd I would stick too. my energy. I wouldn't plan in. for that one. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't plan for that one. Right. <laughs> that's the one where, we, where if, if we as a society get there, that's, you know what? My kids do have it better off than I did. And, and, and the next generation will too. And so we've done our work. Got it. So we're still in the Stone Age. Bad. We're still in the Stone Age for now, but we're slowly evolving. <laughs> yeah. And I think that decoupling will be important. And we managed to stay away from the political nature of the oil economy in the U.S. right now, which was a feat. Thank you for listening to Laps and Gaps. Next week's episode will be about the electrification of automobiles. It'll be a non-Tesla podcast, but be one that talks about uh, new business models being formed and uh, maybe the destruction of a few businesses.